50,000 or so Israelites headed back to Jerusalem following their 70-year exile in Babylon. And God was very explicit about what he expected them to do when they arrived. It is to rebuild the house of the Lord. That phrase appears, I think, seven or so times by the end of Ezra chapter 3. The house of the Lord, the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord is, of course, the temple. And if you were... If you were to stop people on the street today and ask them, where is God? You'll get a a wide range of responses from a vague sense that he's up there somewhere or or he's generically omnipresent everywhere. But if you asked an Israelite that question, they wouldn't blink an eye. I mean, God is in his temple, they would say. His, His house on earth. Now, it's not as though they didn't realize God also dwells in the heavens and, and God is also omnipresent, but the, the, the temple is essentially kind of like an earthly avatar of the heavenly palace that God dwells in and his presence, you know, it's concentrated there in his house. The Babylonians had set fire to it in 587 B.C., But different than the walls of the city of Jerusalem, which were completely obliterated, it seems as though the temple was not destroyed in the same way because it was burned. And we'll read about it today. The number one natural resource needed to reconstruct the temple was timber, not necessarily stone. So there was foundation that was being laid, but primarily they needed timber to reconstruct um, the temple. In other words, they were still operating in a shell of the temple as this passage is uh, taking place. The first part of this temple they begin to reconstruct is the altar of burnt offerings. That was appropriate because the altar of burnt offerings is sort of the, the entryway into the, the deeper parts of the temple. So the temple we've saw, talked about many times before is set up in concentric zones of access. Your primary access point, the door that you come through in order to draw near to God, is the altar of burnt offerings. So it's appropriate, as I said, that they repaired that first. Here's what I'd like, though, for us to consider this morning. The house of the Lord today. Where, what is the house of the Lord? It is, it is the holy Catholic and apostolic church that we recite in the creed, that we affirm in the creed, of which the American church is a small subset, of which All Saints is an infinitesimally small subset. But the Apostle Peter elsewhere, uh, Jeff made reference to it. He calls the church the temple. He calls you living stones. And the one thing that is unmistakable to all of us is that the the temple is like, it is being wrecked right now. The church is, is absolutely getting crushed all across this country. And I can tell you that if you read the literature of church pundits and, and other pastors, they're, they're very concerned about the long-term health of the American church and the global church. So here, the question that I want us to consider, what is going to need to be rebuilt when the dust settles? How do we need to go about rebuilding the temple of the Lord. And I can tell you that the answers that I've been able to come up with to that question um, are insufficient. <laughs> in fact, I don't, I don't even feel like I have much in the way of you know, profound insights to, to pass along to you today. I really think that this sermon is simply a, a call to you, a call to consider, and a call to prayer. Primarily a call to, to pray about these things because They're very important questions for us to consider, not only for ourselves, but for our children and for generations to come. 
And Ezra 3 provides us an opportunity to do so. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the Torah of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. So this is the seventh month. And uh, you got two major feast days, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which they didn't celebrate because there was no temple to celebrate it in. But they did celebrate the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles with the, we read, required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought by the people as free will offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. Skipping ahead to 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel, With praise and thanksgiving, they sing to the Lord, He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple, um, last week I said that nearly all of the people who had left Jerusalem 70 years prior had died out and hadn't returned, but... Uh, verse 12 indicates that I was wrong. <laughs> when they had, Those who had seen the foundation of the former temple, they wept when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. And no one could distinguish between the, shouts of, the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, the sound of uh, nostalgia, the sound of what was and now is, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Shall we pray one more time? Let's pray to the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, come and fill the hearts of your faithful people and kindle within us a fire, a fire of love for you and for your word. Grant that by by it we might see, by your light we might be truly wise and ever enjoy your instruction. For we do not live by bread alone, but by every single word that comes that is breathed from your mouth. Come Holy Spirit and instruct us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we ask it. Amen. I want you to imagine all of the voices, thousands uh, I mean, 50,000, 50,000 plus voices echoing back, um, maybe in in a space about the size of this large field behind us, uh, a group over here, for he is good and his love endures forever. And another group over here, for he is good. 
Yes, and his love endures forever. You know, and there's trumpets and cymbals and thousands and thousands of voices singing and shouting. Such a beautiful scene. When was the last time we heard the exiles, these exiles singing? You probably have to go back to Psalm 137. 137 is the psalm of, of lamentation. Uh, it's, it's a psalm, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of those songs of Zion. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while we are in a foreign land? You know, psalm 137, the song of homesickness and, and loneliness. The song of mourning has been replaced with with the, the shouts and dance of joy, with Psalm 100, really, it's Psalm 100 that we, they're singing here. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. They had a lot of time to question whether or not God would abandon them because of their lack of faithfulness. And once they are brought back, hope against hope, into the promised land, the land of their fathers, the lands of their mothers, they, they realize not him. His faithfulness endures throughout all generations. So they begin by rebuilding the altar of burnt offering. Now let me remind you how this worked. In order to make a sacrifice, a burnt offering sacrifice, the worshiper would first take an unblemished male from their uh, herd, their, that livestock, uh, a male livestock, piece of livestock, um, oxen, bulls. These would have been, as you might imagine, extremely valuable pieces of property, especially so because they have now walked for five months and 700 miles, bringing whatever livestock was in their possession. They walked with those animals for five stinking months through the desert, coming back into the city. And uh, extreme, probably the most valuable possessions they have um, besides besides any you know, jewelry that they might have possessed. The worshiper lays their hands on the head of the, the animal to designate that animal as a substitute. Then, the book of Leviticus says very interestingly, it is not the priest who slays the animal. It is the worshiper who slays the animal. Think about how much energy it would take you to slay a bull, <laughs> for crying out loud. I mean, it's a tall task, the worshiper having to slay this animal, the priest then takes the blood of the animal, he sprinkles it on the altar of burnt offering, and then the entire carcass that has been butchered is placed on that altar. It is burned, consumed entirely. The smoke from the altar rises to heaven, and it's the smoke entering into, you might say, the heavenly palace of God that makes atonement for their sins. Temporarily, of course, because we know that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away could never fully take away their sins. That's why they had to perform these sacrifices over and over again. I want you to get this, though. The altar burnt offering was on 24-7. It was always burning. It didn't matter if you were uh, an insomniac Israelite who wakes up at 2 in the morning, who decides to walk around the city of Jerusalem, um, the shell of the city of Jerusalem, you would see the glow, the glowing coals of that, of that altar burning all the time. 
a constant reminder to you of what? That you cannot draw into the presence of a holy God without atonement, without a substitute for your sins. And thanks be to God that a substitute, a true substitute, has been provided for our sins. When Jesus offered himself on the cross, once for all, the author of Hebrews says, as our sacrifice, dealing with the blood of bulls and goats could never do, which was truly take away from us our sin in order that we might approach God. And, and you know, I really appreciate Jeff pointing out that it, the, the, the result of all of that is that then we might offer our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. Um, that all of life might become for us just a, a habit of, of sacrifice. That's what the church is supposed to be. Frederick William III was the king of Prussia in 1813. To strengthen his country, he carried out an extremely expensive program of public works, but history records that in so doing, he ran out of money <laughs> After careful reflection, he decided to approach the women of Prussia and ask them to bring their jewelry and gold and silver to be melted down and made into coinage for their country. Then he resolved that for each ornament of gold and silver, he would give in exchange a piece of iron and a royal declaration as a token of his gratitude. Each declaration bore this inscription, I gave gold for iron 1813. The response was extraordinary. Uh, These women, the women of Prussia, prized their gift from the king more highly than they did their former possessions of jewelry. They had made a, a costly sacrifice for their king. Indeed, it's a matter of recorded history that it became unfashionable for the women of Prussia to wear jewelry in that day. And so it was that the Order of the Iron Cross was established. Members of this order wore no no ornaments except for a cross of iron with the inscription, I gave gold for iron, 1813. A people so committed to their king that they bore the insignia of of that sacrifice. Um, Surely that's what is needed in the church today. People, an army of people so committed to the king of kings that they see sacrifice as their way of life. Okay, let's return to the question I asked, at the, asked you to consider at the beginning of the sermon. What will we, the church, need to rebuild in the house of the Lord once the dust settles? As I said, Peter calls the church a holy priesthood, a place to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God, a, a temple of the Lord, a temple of the Lord that has been um, under assault what will we need to do to rebuild? Well, numerous ideas come to mind, and I, I don't at all intend to give you a comprehensive list. But the first that comes, um, that jumps out to me, you know, public worship, what we're doing today, corporate worship, has been on a massive decline for the last, say, two decades in America. I mean, it's obvious to everyone, fewer, fewer, and fewer people um, go to church. They, they don't even think that being part uh, of a church is something that's very important um, and, you know, now there is a, a very significant concern that as, as people, you know, stay home and watch things on, <laughs> on the Internet, they live stream, they get out of the habit of making this a priority. 
uh, that you know, church attendance, which has already been suffering, is, is really going to plummet. I can tell you that the church pundits are suggesting that the church may end up losing about 30% of its attendance at the end of COVID. I share that not to be alarmist or not to say that I'm worried that that's going to happen to all saints, but but that's a very real dynamic that's going to be facing every church in America in the coming um, months and potentially years. There's a very interesting interview that Tim Keller did uh, recently. He made this provocative statement that he believed... When the dust settles, nearly every church in America will need to be replanted. He asked the question, when we reconvene, who will be there? Who will show up? This may be an overstatement perhaps, but hey, that's how you get people to listen. All churches are going to have to be replanted. Like all churches are going to have to go through that church plant stage where you're really wrestling with questions like how do we meet meet needs in the church and outside the church? How do we respond to these changes in culture? And, and he says, it will be a test. It is a test that is coming for us. A second very important matter that's going to need to be rebuilt is our evangelistic witness to the world. On a couple of occasions, I've spoken before uh, this buzz, buzzword phrase, defeater beliefs. Do you remember what those are? Those are uh, culturally conditioned objections to Christianity that people just kind of, uh, these implicit assumptions that they have, they don't even recognize our competing set of beliefs, but they have them and they make Christianity seem like utterly implausible. And some of these some of these um, are, you know, there can't be just one true religion in the world. Uh, God cannot be real because there's so much pain and suffering in the world. Science has disproven you know, all of the Bible's um, claims. Um, the Bible is socially regressive towards women's and, women and gays. Defeater beliefs. I think we need to begin to consider to add another one to that list. Everything is so politicized today. Um, and what I observe what plenty observe is this rise of what you might call political religion. I mean, people are so devoted to their politics. Um, in their politics, they have their own Ten Commandments that's every bit as stringent as a backward fundamentalist church um, in the woods. Um, and they are every bit as devoted as devotees in their zeal to their, their political worldview, uh, they proselytize that worldview to others. And what they don't, and the attitude that I think people have is that, like, basically, if Christianity in any way disagrees with my politics, then frankly, I'm just not going to give it a listen. I'm not even going to consider it. And what we have to do is come up with um, winsome ways to push back against. Maybe even help them see that the, the really it's a religion that they're pushing, and and there's a there's a better way of life, a different way of life, that's found in Jesus Christ. That I think is is going to need to be rebuilt. Another matter which desperately needs rebuilt is church unity. I mean, never before that I since I have lived at least has it seemed as though the the Holy Catholic Church has been so disunified. I mean, everything is is. Uh, Everybody is a, has a very strong opinion about everything right now. Everything is polarizing. Um, every opinion is polarizing. I'll give you an example. Um, 
And, and these are ch- challenges that every Christian institution is going to face. I don't run a Christian school. I am not privy at all to what goes on at Ambrose or what goes on in Amber Christian or what goes on at, um, at, at, at Cole. I guarantee you, 101 odds, that there are a, a strong group of people whose attitude, parents whose attitude is, I am not sending my kid back to school in the fall if everyone isn't required to have a mask. And there's an equally strong voice on the other side that says, I'm not sending my kid back to school in the fall if they have to wear a mask. And, you know, we have this mask has become this, this uber polarization in our society, emblematic of the intractable, intractable conflict that we, we see in our culture today. It's just one example, but it's a very real example. And, and everything, everything is, is just makes people mad. <laughs> Paul faced very similar challenges in, in planting congregations that were mixed with Jews and Gentiles. You remember some objected to eating meat that had been sacrificed in the meat market, which had most likely been, um, had been sacrificed to idols and, and they, they, before it was butchered. And they said, we're not going to eat that. And then other Christians in that day said, well, we'll eat just about anything. And you remember what Paul's position on it all was. We must not sit in judgment on, on our brothers and sisters. Uh, and we must not impute motives to one another. We must not impute motives. And I found myself doing that same thing this week, where I, I was blandly imputing motives to another person that I could not substantiate. I was sitting in judgment on them in my heart. And uh, brothers and sisters, the unity of the church of Christ, it can't be man- maintained with that spirit of censoriousness. It can't. You know, our unity must always be centered around the person of Jesus Christ and the wonderful liberating news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that, frankly, is going to need to be rebuilt. Uh, I'm almost done with my list, but I think that we'd all agree that when the dust settles, we're going to need to rebuild friendships, relationships, for many of us, our, our relationships have become stagnant. We haven't seen others for quite a while. Um, on one level, we miss seeing everybody. And on another level, we find it's kind of convenient not, not having to invest all the time and energy into other people. We're going to have to rebuild and pursue relationships. Additionally, and very importantly, we're going to have to find ways to rebuild families. You know, healthy families. The stress this virus has put on families, as you know, is severe. Uh, I hope that I'm wrong. I think we're going to see a major spike in the divorce rate. Um, I think we're going to see, you know, we've already seen a spike in in suicides. I, I think that in our digital age, it's far easier now to be disconnected from your kids than in any other time. And I think it's been very difficult on our children to be separated from their their friends, their peers. Um, if they're stuck on online school this year, uh, that, it's just very difficult time on families. It's also extremely difficult for churches to reboot kids ministry and nursery right now too, because the reality is the the, the number one people who who work your nursery and do Sunday school are older Christians. The very people who probably ought not to be closed in a room with a bunch of younger kids. And so, you know, all of that, all of that are things for us to be aware of, to pray about, and, and consider. 
please don't mistake me. I'm not complaining. I'm really not. And although that is fairly negative, I'm not doomsdaying it. And here's why. These challenges did not come to us at random. This is what the Lord has given us. Like this is, this is the day that the Lord has given us. This is the time that he has raised us up for. This is the hard task we're going to need to step up to and tackle. This is, these are the things for at least the next decade that we are going to have to use the very best of ourselves to pray about and to sacrifice for and to be wise and discerning, to be humble in our attitudes, to be truly loving with our neighbor, with each other, um, to use our time, money, and talents. We have been called, we have been called to rebuild the house of the Lord. What would you add to that list? What would... What would you add to those answers? I guess I didn't even provide many answers, but it really is our responsibility. And um, you know, maybe one of the reasons I had such writer's block this week when I tried to turn my attention to answers, maybe because this sermon wasn't even meant by God to give us answers. It was just meant by God to get us to think and pray. In conclusion, the parable of the ten virgins was a story that Jesus told about a party of bridesmaids who had been invited to participate in a wedding. Each of the ten virgins is found carrying a lamp or torch as they await the coming of the bridegroom. They've been told that beforehand that during the darkest part of the night, the bridegroom is expected to return. Five of these bridesmaids' virgins are wise, and they have brought oil for their lamps to follow him. Five are foolish and have only brought their lamps. At midnight, the virgins hear the call to come out and meet the bridegroom. And when the foolish ones realize that their lamps have gone out and there's not enough oil to share among the ten, they head off in order to find some more oil and be able um, to participate. Well, the bridegroom arrives while they are gone. And the wise men accompany him into the celebration of the feast. The others arrive too late and they are excluded. I mention it because it is a parable of waiting. And there's a whole lot of waiting that we are required to do right now. But it is equally a parable about being prepared. None of us know when Christ is going to return. But when he does, when he does, will he find us busying ourselves with the things that deeply and truly matter? Um, Will he find ourselves working on the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord? Will we be making disciples of all the nations? Will we be wearing our iron crosses that I have given gold for for iron? Will Will we be singing in festive song because what he has done, he is good, Jesus is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. And great is his faithfulness to all generations. Amen.